0: Welcome to A Lifetime On Planet Groove, the podcast celebrating the incredible live album from Maceo Parker and his band, released in 1992, Life On Planet Groove. I'm Guy, and this is Ed. Hello, Ed. Guy, how are you? I'm really well, thanks. Yes, pumped. Pumped for this episode. Yeah. Because, yeah, this is a high-voltage episode, isn't it, in in every respect? Because we've got... I mean, All of our interviews so far have been amazing. We're so grateful to everyone that's spoken to us. But I think we both agree that this is a special one for us isn't it because Hmm. the person that we're talking to or you've spoken to for this episode is someone who is a you know an absolute powerhouse on this album and and really drives so much of the the sort of musical the feel and the vibe of the album isn't it obviously obviously you've got maceo fred wee leading the line then you've got all the supporting players but it's it's the man sitting at the back of the stage who really set fire to the whole thing didn't they? so just tell us about who, we, who we've got on this episode it's Kenwood Denard
1: ah! I spoke to Kenwood Denard
0: <laughs> I don't know because oh, you're wish. a drummer as well obviously yeah. this was I'm, I'm glad I was I was jealous obviously I'm jealous every time you've spoken to someone because I want to speak to these people myself but I think it was right that you spoke to Kenwood as the resident drummer among us well I'm like
2: the um the Kim Maisel interview that you did as well, this one took quite a while to set up. Because, mm. you know, there was a bit of um, toing and froing, and we weren't sure if it was going to happen. And I just, you know, one day woke up and just decided I'm determined to make this interview happen. <laughs> so I ended up interviewing Kenwood Denard at 4 a.m. Sydney time, which um, you know, was an experience in itself and one I can't recommend highly enough. You know, you wake up, have a cup of coffee, interview one of your heroes. Make breakfast yeah. for the kids and toddle off to work. I was, I was floating on cloud man the rest of the day. Yeah. And I just want to say straight off the bat as well, very grateful to um, Kenwood's wife, Sheree, for helping set up this interview. And it mm. did take a, a little bit of setting up, but it was set up in a, a slightly different way to some of the uh, other interviews that we've done for the series. Because something that I did not know until we did this podcast, did not know until we tried to set up this interview, is that Kenwood has a significant hearing impairment. And not because of you know his career as a drummer, he was born ninety percent deaf. And um, yeah, I and had no idea about that either. No, amazing, it blew me away. And he, so he was you know listening on one device, um, speaking another, obviously using his hearing aids, uh, using live captioning, and you know again just immensely grateful to Cherie for helping set this up and helping realize my dream of of interviewing um, Kenwood Dunard. It was just uh, it was great to meet them both. We did have a few technical difficulties um, along the way. There were times we couldn't hear each other and froze in a couple of places. And, and the audio quality does vary a little bit through the interview. Mm. And that meant that, um, you know, in the editing, we had to make a few decisions. And, you know, I'm you know, very happy with the interview that we've got and, and really excited to, um, to share it with everyone today. Um, I, I was slightly loath to, but I did end up cutting some parts from the start of the interview. Mm. Um, just because uh, you know I mean as I said there were a few technical issues along the way but Ken will be sharing things that just demonstrate the extent to that he's someone who just lives and breathes music yeah and you know talking about his um uh, you know some of this was recorded and some of this is from you know my memories of that conversation talking about his earliest memories you know drinking mm. from a bottle as an infant chewing on his blanket and you know investigating those sounds that he could make with his his mouth and then Linking that to, to years later, taking singing lessons with Bobby McFerrin. Who takes singing <laughs> lessons with Bobby McFerrin? Oh, my God. And, yeah. and some of the exercises that Bobby McFerrin was you know, um, teaching him and, that, and how that kind of reminded him of those, his own explorations in sound you know, back when he was just an infant. And he did start you know, very young as a musician, but even before the interview, we were talking a little bit about his, his mum's um, his music school. Mm. Um, just as an aside, there was a guitar teacher there who gave George Benson lessons. So that tells you yeah. <laughs> how, what a great um, music school that was. And yeah, he just was you know, a he decent up, teacher. Yeah, he just grew up surrounded by by music. He started playing piano at three. He started playing the drums at nine. Mm-hmm. He went to a uh, to um a uh, Music School in New York when he was, I think he was saying just five or six. There was some like you know kindergarten program that he was involved in. So. Um, yeah, it was just a, it was a pleasure to talk to him. And um, when you're hearing me during the interview, sometimes you'll hear me uh, just as Kenwood heard me. Other times, I've had to just re-record a few questions for clarity, or just to help with the editing. And sometimes, just because I can't help myself, I'm jumping in with little bits of information, <laughs> sharing my opinions whether people want to hear them or not. So um, please enjoy my conversation with Kenwood Dinard. And to think of the piano, you know, and the drums as quite percussive instruments. You know, there's this right this, the, the the hit either way. Do you see uh, a connection between those two instruments, or did your you know love of the drums come from something that you'd already learned? Well, there the was
3: piano? interestingly enough, I love both, and um, I started on piano, and I felt like I I, I used to imitate James Brown on the piano, um, <laughs> not the voice of course, but the bass lines, yeah. and the guitar parts in particular and the horn parts i would just imitate and it came out pretty nicely um and at that age the young young age i thought you had to play all those parts in order to be a musician i thought james brown was playing all those parts because it all (laughs) came out of the same speaker on the radio you know yeah (laughs) and so but i wanted more ironically i wanted I was so excited, and my imagination was stoked, and I wanted to play more. And to me, like at that young age, playing drums constituted utilizing m- more of my capabilities, namely okay. my my right foot, left foot, right hand, left hand. Whereas sure. the piano, you only got to play that sustain pedal or the sostenuto pedal. That's yeah. that's why I um, yeah, that that's that's what my thinking was. Now I do both, because I thought they were both interesting, so I play them both at the same time.
2: And when did you first think that music might be, you know, your career?
3: Um, It was was kind of a foregone conclusion with me. Hmm. Somehow, because I I had a musical family, I, I always felt like this is what people do. They just have fun in life. They make music in life. They travel the world in life, you know, and people clap and smile and dance and have a good time. Certainly, it became apparent when I was 11 years old, I actually became a veteran.
2: Okay, so shortly after this part, everything froze. And while that was a blessing in one way, because the audio quality started to improve a little once we got back online, um, I just have to fill in some of what Kenwood was talking about here. Chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you're into music, maybe you play an instrument, and maybe when you were 11, you were in a band. But when Kenwood says, Music became his profession when he was 11. He was really in a band. The band you're hearing right now is called Listen My Brother, and they're playing on Sesame Street, proper old-school Sesame Street. Just Google Listen My Brother Sesame Street and you'll find a few clips. Now, when I say Kenwood was really in a band, check out some of the people he was playing with. Cannonball Adley's nephew, Nat Adley Jr., Carlos Alomar, who fans of David Bowie will know for his work with Bowie as a guitarist, and a man who needs no introduction, Luther Van Dross. Oh,
1: you got Luther! Cup 20! Cup 20! Cup 20! 20. Boys and girls! Cup 20! I've played it! Cup 20! Cup 20! You'll never regret it! Cup 20! 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8,
2: 9, 10. Okay. Now back to Kenwood, and I've just asked him about how long he's known last week's guest, the guitarist Rodney Jones.
3: Uh, long time. Yeah. I think uh, we must have met around 1974. I think uh, Rodney could probably, he might remember. But, sure. but we were in rival private schools. I was in Dalton H- High School. And he was in uh, Fields in High School. Um, and um, we spent a lot of time. We lived in a similar neighborhood. Um, he spent a lot of time in East Harlem. I, I grew up in East Harlem, um, along with some of the other people that I mentioned to you, like uh, like uh, Luther Vandross and some of his, uh, let's see, Robin Clark. Um, we, we all were in a similar East Harlem neighborhood. Uh, so I would say I met Rodney maybe in 1975. Um, I, there, there was one time where uh, I was a good athlete in my high school, but so was he. So we had a, a, a one-on-one competition, uh 100-yard dash. And uh, my, my wife thought it would be an interesting story to tell because it shows how far back we go. But I didn't want to tell the story because, well, he, he won the he won the hundred yard dash. Oh well, <laughs> brilliant. And have you forgiven him? Yeah. Well, I mean, I and the funny thing was, I was, I was the number number two athlete in my high school in terms of track and field. But you know, he had it. You know, he, he had he was he's a very athletic. He was a very athletic young man.
2: Yeah. yeah. I know both you and Rodney played in Dizzy Gillespie's band. What was that like? And were you contemporaries, or or did you play with Dizzy at at different times?
3: When I played with Dizzy Gillespie, it was with a guitar player whose name was Ed Sherry, really fantastic guitarist. By the way, he and Rodney are still friends to this day. And I haven't spoken to him in a while, but we're we're good friends. On the bass was a gentleman whose name is Michael Howell. Now, Michael Howell was also a guitarist, and for some reason, Dizzy Gillespie felt that he he enjoyed the sound of his trio better with michael howell on the uh, on the bass and ed ed sherry guitar came on drums and dizzy dizzy on trumpet i guess that's a tru- uh, a, a trumpet i mean a quartet you know it's interesting no. dizzy gillespie turned around to me and he said um don't play don't play the same thing as the bass player you know this is 1979 and yeah. um, you know he was helping me to grow as an as an artist as a drummer. And He said to me, "See, because if you play the same thing as the bass player, see, I only got a trio. So if you play the same as the bass, then I only got a duo." <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it took he... me now to, until the age of sixty seven to realize he was wrong. He had a quartet. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, and because I think and he could um, be wrong if he wants, because he's a genius. And how sure. did how did he how he changed the musical history is so amazing, mm-hmm. so full of playfulness and genius. I just loved it.
2: Yeah, he's allowed to be wrong if he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, obviously, a, a, um, an incredible trumpet player. But I, I believe Dizzy played some percussion as well. Um, sometimes with some well, of his tours, yeah, he might he be playing conga and
3: his percussion playing very seriously. And um, he had uh, Hidalgo Giovanni mm-hmm. Hidalgo, who is reg- is ho- so highly regarded uh, in traditional percussionist schools, and highly regarded by me as the most incredible uh, percussionist uh, conga player. Um, right after I left the band, um, Giovanni came in after me. We also had Ray Barreto sitting in. We had. Let's see. Tito Puente came and sat in with us. I had so much fun with Dizzy Gillespie. I remember I tuned my my drums. uh, I set my drums up in such a way instead of the tom-tom coming off the the bass drum like this. Yeah. I had it coming off the bass drum like this (laughs) because it was to honor Dizzy Gillespie and I played it that way. Oh, brilliant. It was a lot of fun.
2: (laughs) I'm sure he would have liked that. So just for anyone who didn't get that last reference, Dizzy Gillespie was known, amongst many other things, for playing a trumpet that was bent. The bell pointed upward at a 45-degree angle, at first by accident, but later by design as Dizzy liked the tone. So when Kenwood's saying, like this, he's showing me what you don't get to see, the crazy angle he set his tom at coming out from the bass drum, just like Dizzy's horn. Brilliant. And um, We'll get on to Maceo and Life on Planet Groove soon, but I, I couldn't let the chance pass to, to ask you about working with Jaco as well. I had two CDs that had Kenwood Dinard's name on them when I was um, young. One was Life on Planet Groove, and the other was, I think, uh, Live in New York, Volume Two. Might have been you oh, wow. and, and Hiram Bullock, I think. Yeah. What was that Hiram experience Bullock.
3: like? So that was great playing with Jaco. That was more where Dizzy Gillespie was like a father to me. Um, Jaco was like the mischievous older brother to me. And he took me all around and almost purposely went to see how much trouble we can get into. (laughs) Come on, let's go see uh, how many clubs we can go get kicked out of tonight. (laughs) You know, he was a little wild and another genius in his own right to revolutionize the bass the way he did.
1: Yeah.
2: And I wanted to jump back a bit here and talk about another of your musical influences. Um, You talked earlier about learning the piano and um, learning some of James Brown's songs by ear. Can you talk just a little bit about what the music of James Brown meant to you, means to you?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, interestingly enough, James Brown used to perform a song called The Chicken. Um, It was written by Pee Wee Ellis. Mm -hmm. And I played that song with Maceo Parker a lot on the road. But we also played it with Jaco Pastorius a lot. Um, yeah. I think we do, there's some uh, video now on YouTube. Anyway, um, yeah, I did the the chicken with Jaco first, and he had a whole different approach to that song. And then I did it with Maceo on the road a lot as well. And he had more of the, the traditional approach to that. And so James Brown's music always just sort of resonated with me. Uh, when I first heard it, I was on 125th street. I remember where I was when I first heard his music. That's how much it resonated with me. Um, yeah. and in the old days, there was no, there was no Spotify. There was no uh, way to hear the music on a regular basis, except for the, except for radio. So how, how could they promote the music? They used to promote James Brown by blasting the music in the record shops. So you'd walk by okay. the record shop and you'd hear this music. I remember walking by the record shop and getting really stuck listening to that music, almost like a fly, stuck on a fly trap. And I, yeah. I just would spend the entire day sitting there listening to this music. So I mean, I guess um, as, as a youngster, I guess I must have been 13 perhaps. Um, and And I would just get stuck listening. So the music, was, was rhythmic and was way funkier than anything else that was on the radio at the time. I used to like um who, who, who who's the guy who oh, did um an Wilson pickett is his name and James Brown was similar they, they had a similar range and so forth but but James for some reason he was just so focused and so prodigious with with his syncopation and, and he just knew all the musical parts he would dictate all the all the parts and even though he didn't play um much of a uh, pitched instrument he played a little piano but he knew what he wanted and, he, and the band knew it or they lost their jobs <laughs> it, it meant a lot the music was was, all, was also it meant a lot to me because during the atmosphere where i lived was kind of like a racist attitude going on in American society. And he instilled uh, many of us in the black community with a sense of pride, you know,
1: say it loud.
3: You know, it's something, uh, it was something to to, to hold on to. No one else knew about it. Later on, it became mainstream. So he meant a lot to me culturally and musically.
2: So what was it like then? having such a strong connection to that music um you know getting the chance to to work with maceo and, and fred and Wee, who were uh all instrumental in different ways to the james brown sound
3: it was amazing it was after you know, it was totally a dream come true it, it, it was after a lifetime of listening to that music up to that point and mm. um i had already had such a you know a, a wonderful time with that music and then to, to be able to play with the those three individuals, Pee-wee Ellis and Fred Wesley, who I uh, uh still still am in touch with, and Maceo, was was a real a real dream. Uh I was actually sitting it's amazing the way this happened. I was sitting yeah. in my living room and I was chanting. Somehow I had discovered Buddhism. I think Wayne Shorter introduced uh-huh. me to the, the study of Buddhism back in um nineteen eighty seven. And so then here I was around nineteen ninety one. Okay, before the album came out, I was around nineteen ninety one, I'm sitting in my living room and I'm I'm doing my Buddhist meditation. Nam yo go yo and I said, you know what? I really wanna understand my essence. I want to understand like Alex Haley And understand my my roots and blossom and so the freaking telephone rang at that moment (laughs) anyway that's right so it was Natasha so she called up and she says you know we we have this tour coming up and check out the name of the tour you might even know I don't know the name of the tour was Mo Roots oh brilliant and we have this tour called More Roots with, with Maceo Parker. Do you know how it is? Yeah, I know who that is. Would you like to join us? And I'm like, holy shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and it was great because I, I did get a chance to really understand. In fact, while I was meditating, I came to the realization that in my, in my view and in my sensibility, it seems to me that my roots are primordial. So my roots are the same as Ed's roots, same as Cherie's roots. I mean, the stars are my roots, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so there, there it was. I also got a chance to, to delve into my roots uh, musically as well with that, with that whole tour, with the connection with, uh, with James Brown. I must say, yeah. one of the other things I love is spontaneity. And man, Maceo and Pee Wee and Fred Man, they, they, you'll never hear it again, but when we were together, uh, they improvised so beautifully together. Maybe you've had okay. the opportunity to hear some of that.
2: Absolutely. When we talked to Vincent Henry, he talked about playing with those guys, with, with, uh, with Maceo and, and, and Fred and Wee, and um, about it not being enough just to be correct, that you had to tune in to their, you know, their voice. You had to sing with them. And it, it does sound like a group singing when you hear them together, you know, three voices, but one mind. I, I, um, I don't know how else to put it. it.
3: And Vincent Henry did a great job coming in. I didn't know him before the, the actual recording mm. of that record. I, hadn't, I had never met the man. And he, came, he did a great job coming in and playing that record, uh, Life on Planet Groove. You know, Kudos to him.
2: And um, what are your memories then of the the gigs that became the Life on Planet Groove recording?
3: Um, well, you know, actually that was done in Cologne. It's a, it's a charming little cafe. And in a way that wasn't the most, uh, amazing gig. We had a gig right before that in Stockholm and that gig was even more electrifying. If you can imagine it was by that time we were on a roll, just like, just like James Brown was once he got started, he was, he was sweating. And that's the way it was. Once we got started, we couldn't stop. So Stock Garden, I just remember it from the from the recording. We just had a, a great time. I we the very first note. If you're carefully to that the recording, the very first note. I was looking somewhere else. Uh, Maceo has a way of going of of starting songs. You know, here goes. Okay, and that's it. That it it you know <laughs> you, you weren't, if you were not on top of it you would be really embarrassed at, at, you know, at, that's the, at, le- at least embarrassed, maybe worse. I don't know, but I've got to tell you, I, you know, he taught me a lot and Maceo, he really helped me to discipline my, uh, myself musically. And yeah. again, another, another genius. When I was listening to him as a kid, I had the sense that he really somehow tapped into what was absolutely perfect to play at the perfect time uh i'm not telling you anything that you don't already know but many Mm. generations of saxophone players after that have considered his playing the perfect playing he was emitting just the perfect music as well i I thought so too i still do
2: so um your time playing with that group then with maceo was that Characterized a lot by improvisation and, and following each other on the night,:
3: That's a good question. no, no. there were a few gems of improvisation. Yeah. Uh-huh I would say there was improvisation in the following sense: If you played in Mesos' band, you had to know the genre. you had to know what you were doing without mm-hmm. instruction, really. And um, that was improvised in a sense. So I, I had to know to, to, to set up the rhythms a certain way. I had to know, you know, just the style of it. And, and he would maybe alter the the forms and he would improvise. That was another form of improvisation. So you had to yeah. listen carefully and see where he was going and be able to go with it. There was a kind of a group. Improvisation on that level, but it wasn't mm. like what you heard when I did that duet with Maceo, uh, and the whole band st- stopped and we started uh, jamming together on what's the name of the song? Uh, on Shake Everything Halfway. You Got. Halfway. Yeah, yeah, Halfway. yeah Halfway. 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 And 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 the, the lyrics, of course, uh, are yeah. Shake Everything You Got, and so that was improvised. And then the horns would improvise freely, yeah. a group a group improvisation. Whoever sure. was the soloist would also improvise, and the yeah. band would have to be light on their feet and be able to follow. And in a way, that's sure. a, a form of improvisation as well. You have to spontaneously be right there to follow and to, to know the genre. 90, two 90, percent uh, jazz and 98% funky stuff.
1: Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to ask because you mentioned it as well. But, don't know if it's even a question, or I just want to say, but that solo on Southwick, where it breaks down to the drums and then it's you and Maceo playing, is just one of my favorite moments in music ever. I can well, that's interesting. Replay I every note of that in my head, you know.
3: Me too. It's... Me too. That's why I'm married <laughs> to him. <laughs> that's how. That's where she first heard me, right on that record. Yeah. She didn't know I existed yeah. before that, right? Yeah, yeah. That record is will put you on the map with me, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. That 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 was one. It's funny that you say that because it was one of my most important musical moments as well. I would say mm, playing with Miles Davis was one. Uh, playing with Pat Martino at the, mm-hmm. a place called the Riviera '76 Music Festival was yeah. one. Uh, but for other reasons. That one with Maceo Parker involved far more playing the the music in the funk genre of the spheres, but a funky version of the music of the spheres. It was just, you know, something that you could imagine was perhaps broadcast from heaven and then we were simply the radio that emitted that broadcast to the audience.
1: Yeah, it was
2: a beautiful moment, and we've mentioned um, Rodney a couple of times already. But have you gone on to collaborate with any of the other people who uh, were part of that tour as well? Any of the other musicians? Well,
3: actually, I have something planned with Fred. Oh, great! Yeah, we went. Uh, we we went. Uh, my my wife and I were traveling down south, and we stopped off at his, his house, and we rekindled a um, a wonderful friendship. And the vibe was high, and, yeah. and he said he wants to do something. So, we may um, soon, after I finish with this uh, record, he, he may come on and be with the record I'm recording now, which is called Groove Ship. Uh, mm-hmm. And we will have Rodney come back and do that. We'll, he'll record yeah. with us on the record Groove Ship with Kenwood Reginard, Westworth on the bass, pending Fred Wesley, pending Rodney Jones. We also have Stanley Jordan on the guitar. Yeah. We have Chris, let's see, Chris Florio on the guitar, really a, a computer whiz and a wonderful yeah. creative musician. And who else? Who am I leaving out? Can we that that that's uh we have Cherie. Um my wife is is playing some percussion, I think. And, and singing. And so um that's gonna be something to look for. We're gonna call it the Groove Crew, the life life on Planet Groove Crew. Rodney and I have also rekindled. I know you know. I, I know you said I mentioned Rodney. He and I mm-hmm. rekindled our our friendship, and I played on his record called Soul Manifesto. It's called Soul Manifesto Live, and we came back and we did a uh, an anniversary. Was the 40th anniversary event? Uh, something like that. But I'm not even 40 wow. years old. I think it's 30. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and if you're reconnecting
2: with Rodney at the moment, any plans to rerun that hundred meter race? Who do you think would win now?
3: Um, I think right now. Yeah, you could take him, right? <laughs> he's he's goading us on. I tell you what, if if you come up with enough money, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair <enough.
2: laughs> Kenwood, there was just one more thing that I wanted to ask you about. Um, my co-presenter is a big fan of uh, Phil Collins, and I couldn't pass up the chance to to um, ask you about working with Brand X. I really like the um, that livestock album that I think has you playing on some tracks and and Phil playing on other tracks. But I'm assuming they were just taken from different performances, or is there a time when you both played together in the
1: band?
3: Yeah, there was a time when I played uh, together uh, together with him. I think it was at the Hammersmith Odeon in London,
1: nineteen.
3: I think it would have been seventy eight or seventy okay. seventy yeah, nineteen seventy seven. Maybe it was probably seventy seven. That was another beautiful band with a lot of special moments as well, and imp- totally improvised. Mm. Um, and then mm. we would try to piece it together into various compositions. So I did one composition called "Nightmare Patrol" um, on that record, "Livestock," with yeah. with John Go- uh, John Gozo. We you know, we mm-hmm. composed it together. Wow, I did not know that. I think maybe most of the people you speak with would feel this way. Improvisation is the most fun part. And composing together is just so, it's like double fun. I also, you know, went to school, learned how to read, study, you know. I'm able to support uh, uh, the band leaders of my life as well. But otherwise, I would never have had a career. So yeah, I have to be supportive and I love that. I love that too, but uh, but the the improvisation, like what we did with John Goodall, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. That was part of the joy of, of working with Macy. That yeah. it was funky. It was entirely different genre from where you would expect to hear group up improvisation, and yet yeah. we did improvise sometimes. Yeah.
2: Well, I think for me I, and my friend who I'm making this with, that, that's one of the things that we love most about life on planet Groove. You know, because in funk, there's there's playing just the part that's needed. No more, no less, but but that uh, um, combined with, with the solos and, and the energy, it's just an incredible combination of creativity and, and discipline that you know I think led to something truly special.
3: I well, no, I appreciate that <laughs> way, you know because that, that band was was great, and young musicians out there should take mm. heed uh, mm. of their older band leaders because in the case of Maceo Parker, in the case of Wayne Shorter, in the case of Dizzy Gillespie, um, even in the case of Jocko in, in in a different way, they would tell me to do things and lead me in a certain direction. And I would say, ah, eh, you know, how come he's telling me to do this? Oh, well, maybe I'll do what he wants me to do. And then once I did it, I realized, wait a minute, it's way better that way. And here, you're, you're like the, the feedback, that teaches me. You're like a, a voice from the universe and reminding me, wow, you know, this, uh, Maceo always insisted that we we play just the, what's necessary. We play the parts, you know, yeah. no showing off and so forth. And that's where we were able to channel that music of the funky spheres.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Kimber. That sounds like the perfect place to wrap things up with our talk today. Um It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, you've had an incredible career and I've you know, um, parts that I knew and all sorts of things that I've learned in the last hour that I didn't know as well. Oh um, wow. thank you so much for agreeing to be thank part of the you podcast.
3: For caring about the music of the funky spheres. <laughs> <laughs> Once
1: again, give a big round of applause to the drummer, Mr. Ken
0: Oh, Kenwood. Kenwood! I know! That was, honestly, that was, when I listened back to that, when you sent it over to me, because we waited, you know, let's be honest, it took a while after the interview for uh, for us to get the audio. So when it finally came through, I think as well, it built the anticip. I was yeah. looking forward to it anyway, but it built the anticipation up so much that I was genuinely thrilled listening back to that for the first time. And it's so, it's just amazing. Like, you know, you said before the interview started, it's almost like... Preordained. I think he used that word, preordained, uh, that he would be yeah. a musician. He just didn't see any. <laughs> there was no other alternative in his mind about what he would do with his life. And just the, I just love his, his whole attitude to it. His, he's obviously so talented, so brilliant as a musician. Yeah. You know the fact that he can play the drums and the piano. At the same time. I mean when Vincent who told told that? You about that the,
2: when Vincent yeah. told you about the isn't isn't his, in, his in view, I think we were just like, He does what? Yeah, but, you know, I'm he, still
0: kind of yeah. getting over that, really, that that, that actually can happen. But uh, yeah, I mean he's an astonishing, astonishing player, isn't he? And he mm. I loved those the stories he told about, you know, the those early days are incredible, and some of the people that he's just crossed paths with over the years. Yeah. It's just mind-blowing. And so yeah, that was a that was such a thrill to listen back to that. I was so pleased that we that we you got to speak to him and that then we got to put this episode out because I think it's it's amazing.
2: absolutely. I love to hear about him uh, playing with Jacko um, yeah. what, what was he said you know um, where Dizzy was like the the kind of father figure Jacko was like the the mischievous uncle <laughs> yeah let's see how yeah. many nightclubs we can get thrown out of tonight <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's the thing you know for me. I don't know if you I don't know if you remember this, but I think this is a bass player thing, obviously. Mm. But that there's the that amazing Jaco Pastorius uh bass player, you know, I forgot what it's called now, but it's essentially introduction to to jazz bass or whatever. And it's him like talking about you know different fingering styles and stuff like that, the whole okay. first half of the video. Yeah. And then the second half is him jamming mm. with Kenwood Denard and John Schofield. I had forgotten about that. I know! I just <laughs> It's such a, that whole, that sort of half an hour of that video is so alongside Life on Planet Groove is yeah. such a big thing as well, because I, used, I watched that video so many times when I was learning to play bass, mainly thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to play bass like this, but it, it was inspirational. <laughs> Not just you guys, no one can play bass like no, that. Exactly. You know, it's like every single bass player that's ever watched Jacko's video yeah. has in the back of the mind, well, this is great, but I'm never going to be able to play as well <laughs> But it is, it's definitely an inspiration. And it was, that little jamming session is so good as well. And hmm. yeah, it's, um, it was such an incredible um, thing that was produced back in the early 80s, I think it must have been.
2: Yeah, that sounds about right.
0: It was amazing. Amazing piece of uh, footage of that time.
2: So it's hard to pick, for me, sort of favorite bits from that interview, you know, especially listening back to it now, there's all sorts of things that i because again, like you said, there was a bit of a gap between recording it and then waiting and then getting it, um, Mm. all sorts of things. And there I'd even forgotten about, but I just loved, you know, when he was talking about um, how he came to be part of that lineup on on Life on Planet Mm. Groove and, you know, um, meditating. uh, He talked about, you know, Alex Haley and trying to reconnect with his roots and then the phone rings (laughs) and it's (laughs) Natasha who I also spoke to. Yep. You know because that you know the the mo roots album you know the, this tour was basically just after that I suppose so where the earlier tours were kind of you know Macy Parker and roots revisited this was ostensibly mm-hmm. the Maceo Parker and, and mo roots tour but just mm-hmm. um you know the and then you know became life on planet Groove when you know Stefan decided we it was really time to do a live album mm-hmm. but yeah I just love that <laughs> city what are what are my roots yeah <laughs> and um I was saying before that you know, with the Rodney interview, we started with a little piece of uh, of the album to talk about some of um, you know what we love about Rodney's playing. But there's mm. something else that we're going to have to uh, get into now, Guy, and it's something we've talked about in almost every episode. Yeah, it's you know, it's time it's time for that moment. I feel it's like it's you know, it's the moment that you and I have both described at various times throughout the podcast as our favorite moment in
0: music ever. Well, did you did you remember that Sherry said it was the moment that yeah, she <laughs> that's, why or, she oh, <laughs> that's why she married him. That's I why she married mean, him. This is an important piece of music. Yeah, in all of our lives, probably mostly Camerons by the sound <laughs> of it. But it's yeah, it's it's an incredible moment. I, you know, we've talked about it a lot. Hmm. It is the it is well, you you describe it because you've been building up to describe this moment, haven't you?
2: Well, we've talked about it so much. I don't know how much more introduction it needs, but I'm I'm. I was just thinking way back to the start of the the this podcast and you were talking about the, the build-up, you know, the, yeah. that we know. And you know, I'm assuming you know, most of our listeners are familiar with this if you're not, you know, you're in for a treat in a minute or so. <laughs> that the the incredible euphoric peak that it builds up but gets to, but all that build up before being yeah. so essential. So what what I'm um proposing we play now is, you know, perhaps Pushing the definition of extract a little bit. This is going to be about seven or eight minutes, which is still less, still less than half the song. To be yeah. fair, yeah. but we'll hear, yeah. Yeah, we'll hear the horns come in. We'll hear, uh, we'll hear Fred Wesley's solo. We'll yeah. hear Kemwood's um, drum solo that I'd like to talk about again. Uh, well, talk about after we listen to this, and then mm-hmm. the moment, the one yeah. we've been talking about all along. Are you yeah. ready, Guy?
0: I'm ready. I'm ready. Strap I'm ready.
2: yourself in. This
1: is No. Oh, my
2: goodness.
0: Truly just, magnificent.
2: Yeah. Outstanding. And, you know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, just listening to it for the 100th, 500th, I don't know how many times. It's like yeah. listening to it the first time again. I remember the yeah. first time I heard it. I remember other times I've played it with other people. Yeah, as uh, as I'm sure it does for you, just an important place in my life, that little bit of music that we just heard. Yeah. And,
0: yeah. It's just amazing. Oh, Love that's it. That's kind of reason why I'm Can't get enough. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. It is the sort of defining moment of the album, isn't it? And yeah. everyone knows that moment as well. It's, it's interesting as well. Everyone we've spoken to, it, as soon as we start to mention that moment, they all know what we're talking about, don't they, straight away. There's no like, oh, do you remember that bit in like, in uh, Shake Everything You've Got? They go, they go, oh, yeah, 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 I know what you mean. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and it's, it's spread around as well, you know, um, probably even to this day, but certainly back then, you know, you'd hear bands going, oh, you're doing... That bit from that album, you know, suddenly there were sax and drum breakdowns happening, you know, left, right, and center. But I wanted to talk for a minute about something we haven't really talked about uh, much before. But in the context of um, having the chance to to interview Kenwood for this episode, Kenwood Dinard's drum solo Mm. before the Maceo and Kenwood moment, I just, I just love. Yeah, it just such a um, a demonstration of all the things we've talked about about the the discipline and being in the pocket with the flair and the energy and the driving force behind it and my absolute most favorite thing you know thinking back to um like natasha and her talking about uh how maceo took on um george clinton's ethos of the 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 audience is the star in funk music Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and thinking about rodney's interview and him talking about um you know how maceo's singular ability to include people and that know, stretches far beyond the people who are actually there at the gig just listening to this album. You feel like you're included on it.
1: Mm.
2: Kenwood Denard playing the audience as a musical instrument <laughs> is just sublime. Yeah, You know, the, the crowd's there, they're clapping on, on the backbeat on the two and the four and Kenwood's just leaving that space for them. He's playing the yeah. crowd. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to play you. <laughs> you're going to play yeah. that beat in this solo. And it's just right. astonishing.
0: I'd not thought of it like that before, but he does just leave like huge gaps in there, doesn't he? For the crowd yeah. to be part of the solo. Yeah. You're right. It's so brilliant. There's something as well about, I know I've mentioned this before, but the, the I love so much the, the sound of the drums on this mm. album, but particularly the snare and in yeah. that solo, the snare is just like, it's, it's just something sort of otherworldly, isn't it? It's just, yeah. it, it's so powerful and so on the money. You know, it's amazing. And he, he throws in those crazy toms as well at different times, doesn't he? Yeah. Like the like single tom hits at different points. It really, it's just such an inventive solo, isn't it? And it's so, yeah. as you say, it's the crowd, a part of the solo. I'd not really thought of it like that before, but yeah. it's so obvious now when you say it.
2: And it's just, you know, the, the push and the pull. And it's not, you know, super flashy. Kenwood could play mm. anything he liked, but he was playing just what needed to be played for that crowd in that moment, in that song. Oh, mm. mm. uh, It's just, yeah. Amazing!
0: I love that solo. It's interesting, actually. You say that because that's one of the things he said about Maceo, wasn't it? He said Kenwood did that. Mm. Something about Maceo is that I can't remember the exact wording now, but it's that he plays exactly what's needed. Yeah. He plays exactly what's needed for that song at the right time. And, and you, yeah, that that's you know you're basically saying that about Kenwood there, which is true, I think. But that is when you think about Maceo, I think that's so true that he plays. It's hard to imagine anything else being played. Hmm. You know, at that moment, <laughs> that sounds really, you know, pretentious, but it's like, as well, I think what Maceo is so good at and what Kenwood does in that drum solo is it, it's not just, everything is like, a you know, it's, it's carrying you through the song, like it's yeah. a journey from a, one point to another and everything is building or dropping and there's always an ebb and flow to it. It's really, yeah, it's, it's, it's like conversations, isn't it? It's like really good conversations with, between the band and the audience. Absolutely, yeah. I love it. Yeah.
2: And um so we're getting towards the end of this week's episode and we're gonna have a little break now over Christmas. So we hope to be um oh we will be back in the new year. Um where there's, you know, another three or four four interviews that we'd we'd love to be able to bring you. I'm I'm quietly confident about one of those happening. The others are mm-hmm. kind of in, <laughs> in hidden hope territory now. So <laughs> If you're out there, cross your fingers.
0: Yeah, we've thrown up a few Hail Marys at this point, yeah. haven't
2: we? <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, yeah. if even in the event that we can't, you know, bring any more interviews, we'll be back in the new year anyway, at least to, to wrap up the series, talk about, you know, yeah. all the people we've spoken to, you know, relive some of the, the moments that we've um, we've enjoyed. And again, just, you know, as always, we'd love to hear um, from you. And we know there are some of you now, you know, we're, we're um, heading up towards, I don't know, uh, four 400 downloads something like that yeah. Yeah, a modest figure but there's, there's you know, we said at the start we didn't know if anyone was going to listen to this and it's nice to know that
0: <laughs> we're building to a climax That's yeah, building very slowly yeah
2: so you know now's your chance if you want to get in touch you know thank you to, for those um, people who, who have we've had a couple of you know lovely emails but if there's something you'd like to say about what this album means to you the first time that you listen to it you know what your experience with it is, we'd love to include some of that on uh, you know an episode in the new year so yeah do um do please get in touch yeah
0: would well, that be great wouldn't it it'd be really lovely to if, if anyone does get in touch and we can read out your messages and your sort of thoughts on any of it it'd be, that'd be a lovely way to sort of bring things to a close wouldn't it if we don't as as you say if we don't have any more of the interviews that we're we're hoping to get but you know we'll see how those pan out but it'd be lovely to read out some messages from from, from listeners
2: yeah. Fingers crossed. So um, I had, I um, haven't told you about this yet, Guy, but picked out something slightly unusual to play out with for today's episode. And mm-hmm. it's one of the tracks not from the original um, release of Life on Planet Groove, but it's my favorite track from the um, Life on Planet Groove Revisited, mm-hmm. which is when the band are playing um, uh, the Marvin Gaye tune, Let's Get It On.
0: Oh, and, yeah. You
2: know, would would have sounded amazing on the original album. And for anyone who's not uh, had the chance yet to listen to that extended version of the album? Do go please check it out. And there's a a, a part here. You know, I was just um, bragging before about our very you know small <laughs> audience of of people. But there's a, a listening back to that version of the album. There's a part in that tune where Maceo is talking about his uh, global audience and the connections that he's mm. made with people around the world. And you know, especially at this time in his life, the, all the places he was touring around the world. And it just reminded me of you know the fact that. Something I love about you know the, the, the small audience that we do have is that they're spread you know everywhere all over the world you know um, yeah. all around the US, UK, Europe, um, Japan, you know, Italy, Sweden, Spain, Netherlands. it might only be two or three people in each country. Yeah. But, and I think that says you know that doesn't say something about us. I think that says something about Maceo's yeah. um, global appeal and the global appeal of funk.
0: Yeah well just one final thing to say actually by the way. What, how good must Stockholm have been?
1: Oh, <laughs> I can't.
0: Kenwood, that was his main thing. Yeah, this was a good one Forget but this Stockholm one. was even better. What? <laughs> <laughs> we need to track down the details of that gig and find someone who was there at Stockholm. Yeah. Apart from Kenwood, obviously, to see if, if that's true.
1: If, if uh, you're um, one if of our two listeners we'll in, in Sweden.
0: Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you were at the Stockholm gig, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> hey, what would it have been like February 1992? I guess I think yeah. I think it was March '92, wasn't it in Cologne? So you probably March, February '92. There we go. If you were there, let yeah. us know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, nice one, guy Enjoy your Christmas. See you in the you new too, year. You
0: too, Ed. You too. See you What
1: about in Japan? <laughs> 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 huh? <laughs> what about in Berlin? What about back in London? Say what? What about California? Shucks. What about New York City? What about here? What about Cologne, Germany? What about Oslo, Norway? Good God. Right, y'all say uh. ring of, ring of, ring what about texas ring what ring about ring north ring carolina ring what about florida Mr Marvin Gaye